Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit here at Grace Church. Today we begin what I think will be a wonderful new sermon series. It's titled, The I Am Statements of Jesus. There are seven commonly referred to I Am statements in the in the Gospel of John. You probably know a few of them. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says, I am the true vine. These are the seven I am statements we're going to look at. But before we look at them, we're going to dive into a another I am statement that Jesus makes in John's gospel. Because once we understand this I am statement, um, it forms a wonderful foundation for us to look at the others. Those seven I am statements, they follow a formula. Jesus says, I am, and then he fills in a blank. For instance, I am the bread of life. The I am statement that we're going to look at today, Jesus doesn't really fill in a blank. In verse 58, if you look there in your bulletin or in your Bibles, it's John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. On the surface, you might not be all that impressed with what he says. But as we look at those who heard Jesus first say these words, we see that they rose up to stone him to death. See, Jesus had appropriated words that God alone is allowed to utter. In, in saying, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus was, he was claiming deity. Our passage is actually part of a really long dialogue that begins in chapter 7 and it ends with our passage. Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. He went there for a week-long festival of the tabernacles and he's teaching in the temple. There's all kinds of people gathered around and he's telling them words to to keep, to, to hold on to, to treasure. And yet these people try to turn Jesus' words against him. They, they think they've got Jesus figured out, that he's, he's just a man from the backwaters of Galilee. He, he cannot be the Messiah. And, and, and as um, we get closer and closer to our passage, the crowd becomes more and more hostile and belligerent. Here before them, try to understand this, is none other than God in the flesh, the great I am. And in the end, they do not rise up to honor him. No, they rise up to kill him. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. 
I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. My friends, this is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for sending us the word, your son, that in him we might have life. We pray in this hour that uh, anything that hinders us that are gathered here, anything that hinders us from receiving these words and comprehending them as you want us to comprehend them, we pray that you would take away any obstacle before us, Lord. We pray that we would honor you with our thoughts this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a couple of years ago, Leslie and I needed a new car. Um, not you know, not so much new, new, but new to us. <laughs> uh, we've been doing the Dave Ramsey thing where you set aside a car payment every month, and then after a certain period of time, you should have enough to buy a nice used car, let somebody else take the hit on the depreciation. And so I'm online, and I'm doing the Carvana thing, and I found, I've been looking for a Ford Edge, and we found a Ford Edge up the aisle, and it was a great price, pretty darn good, but it wasn't quite the price we needed. Um, we had a dollar amount that we were comfortable with. Um, so I called him up on a Friday, and, and a sweet woman answered the phone, and we were talking, and I'm like, I saw it online. Uh, is it still there? Yes, we still have it. I'm like, um, the price is this, but is there any wiggle room? <laughs> Can we negotiate? She says, let me check. And she pulls up the, I guess, on the computer, and she says, oh, yes, we've had this vehicle on our lot for a while. So um, when you come in, you, you'll be able to negotiate a, a price. I'm like, okay, all right, we'll be there at 10 tomorrow. So Leslie and I drove up there, and we met the salesman. We went out for uh, a nice test drive. The car was great, you know, still had that new car smell, kind of. Um, And then, you know, we entered into the pit. You know what I'm talking about. We sit at the table with the salesman, and and, um, he's like, all right. He's like, all ready to write us up. And I'm like, well, I slide my paper over. I'm like, this is the price that we want to pay. He's like, all right, but uh, let me go and talk to my sales manager. Uh, And so he disappears into some room. I think there's just like playing ping pong or something for a minute or two. And then he comes out and he comes back and he says, he says, "Um, you know, we really, uh, you know, we really can't go any lower than that. So I take my notes out and I said, well, so-and-so, I don't remember her name, Lucy, uh, said that you have some wiggle room on this. We can negotiate. You know, she said it's been on the lot for a while. He's like, all right, let me go back to my sales manager. And so Leslie's like, Mark, Mark, all right, so if they don't lower the price, are, are you saying we're leaving? I'm like, I think we need to. You know, we need to prepare to go if they can't lower the price. 
She doesn't like that kind of stuff. I kind of get into it. But anyway, <laughs> he comes back, and here's what he said. He says, we can't lower the price. The sales manager says, this is such a really low price that we could actually take this vehicle and, and go sell it at auction and get more. I stood up and I said, well, why don't you go do that then? And we walked, and Leslie's like, okay. We, we make it all the way, we make it all the way to the, uh, reception counter. And the guy's yelling, hold on, hold on, let me talk to my manager. I'm like thinking, didn't we already do this twice? So like, all right, all right. So I'm waiting there at the counter. And then there's this reception, receptionist. He's a guy, he's there, and he starts talking to me. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, I explained him everything. I showed him the piece of paper. And he's like, all right, let me pull that up. Pulls it up in the computer. And he says to me, he goes, okay. We can do that price for you. And I'm like, well, thank you, but you know, my salesman's with the sales manager and they're going to work it out. So we'll see. Thanks for your encouragement. And he's like, um, no, I'm the general manager. They report to me. And you should have seen the salesman's look when this, when the general manager says, write it up. Now, I tell you the story, not so that you want to hire me for your negotiations. <laughs> Next time you go out. Um, but to me, I got, I got the general manager's identity all wrong. To me, he looked like an underpaid receptionist who was there just working some extra hours on the weekend, trying to pay down that Christmas credit card bill, you know? I got his identity all wrong. I didn't really see on the inside what it was. I didn't peel back any layers to try to understand. And, and the same thing is happening in Jesus' life in our passage. The religious leaders, these people um, in Jerusalem, they're there, uh, and, they, and they wrongly assume that Jesus is an underpaid receptionist. Actually, something quite worse. Look at verse 48. It says, The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus has a lot to teach this crowd and to teach us if we will let him. But in the end, the crowd will fail. Why? Listen, their approach to knowing Jesus was doomed to fail at the very start. What do I mean? Have you ever heard of the analogy of the onion? You know, it's like some people or things are like the onion. You got to peel back some layers. And the more you peel back the layers, the more you learn, the more you know. Well, certainly Jesus has a lot of layers to be peeled back. But the analogy breaks down with Jesus. Why? With an onion, the more layers you peel back, the core gets smaller and smaller and more manageable, more knowable. But not so with Jesus. The more you peel back the layers, the larger, more complex and mysterious he gets. The crowds assumed that as they investigated Jesus and peppered him with questions, they would get a smaller, more human, misguided rabbi. Today people do the same thing. They think that the more they peel back Jesus and get into his identity, the less complex, the easier he will be to process, the more familiar and understandable he will be. But my friends, if, if that is your assumption, if that is how you operate in trying to come to understand Jesus, you will never judge him rightly. 
You will never hang on His words and keep His words like, like He says we're to do in this passage. But my friends, when you do peel back the layers and you see that Jesus is the great I am, Jesus doesn't become simpler and more manageable. No, He becomes more grander and glorious and worthy of our devotion. And so this morning, let us peel back some layers that we may come to see Jesus as he wants us to see him. He is the great I am. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to investigate that. We're going to, we're going to spend our time in two areas. We're going to look, look at the conflict here. And then we're going to spend some time under contemplation. First, the conflict. This is a long exchange that's taken place in chapter 7 and chapter 8. The crowds are gathered in, in the temple, and they're becoming more and more hostile towards Jesus. They're peeling back layers, and they find out that Jesus is not what they want him to be. And so with every word that he says, the crowd pushes back more and more until we get to, to our passage. They're so infuriated that, that in verse 48, they throw a Molotov cocktail at Jesus. And they says, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Talk about a double whammy. Now, Samaritans were distant relatives of the Jewish people. They were despised. They were avoided by the Jews in Jesus' day. And demons, well, to say Jesus has a demon is to say that he's in partnership with the devil himself and that he's actually an enemy of God. They thought they had Jesus figured out, but oh, how far off base they were. Jesus responds by saying, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Notice he doesn't say, I'm not a Samaritan. That would have been the easiest point to prove, right? Why not say, I do not have a demon, and I'm definitely not a Samaritan? Why? Why not? Listen, because Jesus came to live and to die for all nations, including Samaritans. Jesus loves the Samaritan people. He's able to identify with them. And in a number of months, Jesus will die on the cross for the whole world, including Samaritans. So Jesus' response is to help them, to peel back a layer. In verse 49 and 50, he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus is saying that his life on earth is all about honoring his Father in heaven. Jesus is not seeking glory for himself. The people on earth were judging whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. And their criteria for the Messiah was what? That he must be glorious by earthly standards powerful and strong, carrying a massive sword and riding on a beast of a horse as he tramples upon the Samaritans and the Romans and then every other nation. And yet, Jesus is unfathomably, that's a hard word to say, humble. He is so unfocused on his own glory. Every breath, every thought, is about honoring his Father in heaven, whom he loves. Jesus told the crowd, there is one who seeks my glory, and he is the judge. 
Listen, Jesus is saying that there's only one one person's opinion that he cares about, and it's his Father in heaven. My friends, listen, Jesus lays down a principle for us this morning. There is ultimately only one opinion that should matter for us, and that is the opinion of our Father in heaven, who loves us dearly because of Christ. Christian, a quick lesson for us. So often we do not evangelize our neighbors. We do not bring this message of of hope to the people around us. We're so afraid of other people's opinions. What will they think of me? My friends, do you see that when we live this way, it's a sign that we seek our own glory, not our Heavenly Father's glory. Next, Jesus says something in verse 51 that seems to come from left field. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, understand this. If it was you and I, or if Jesus was seeking his own glory, like defending his own name, he could have brought down like fire from heaven, you know, to consume these self-righteous jerks. He could have. Instead, as the crowd is tweeting and retweeting all sorts of hateful inaccuracies concerning Jesus, Jesus turns in mercy. Jesus says, I'm not seeking my Father's glory. or My own glory, I'm seeking my Father's glory. He came to... to, to and, and what did the Father want Jesus to do? To bring His mercy and His grace to this earth. The Father sent Jesus for self-righteous jerks like these. And like us. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He's being merciful to them, even as they attack him. He offers them eternal life in him. But they turn their backs on him. Again, the attack in verse 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Lawyers will tell you that when they cross-examine someone on the witness stand, you are never to ask a question that you don't already know how the witness will answer. Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than all the prophets? The crowd believes that Jesus' only reply could be, no, I'm so sorry. You're right. I'm not greater than Abraham. Certainly not the prophets. I, I got so carried away in the heat of the argument. Sorry. You're right. That's what everyone was expecting. Hence the rebuking question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Notice it doesn't say, who are you? But who are you trying to make yourself into? They accuse Jesus of being a, a faker, a poser. But stop and think about this. Jesus, listen, is the only human being who has ever lived, who has never wished he was someone else. 
Jesus had no interest in trying to make himself into someone he isn't. That is what we human beings, though, do to Jesus. We make him out to be someone he isn't. People peel back the layers of Jesus. And when they come across something that's hard to accept, they push back at Jesus. Who are you trying to make yourself out to be? For instance, when Jesus says, and we'll look at this in the weeks ahead, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that that he is the only way for a human being to be at peace with God. There is no other way to God but through the cross of Christ. And today, many people will reply, Who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? My God would never be so narrow. In verses 54 and 55 um, is a response to their question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus essentially says, I'm not trying to be anything other than that what my Father in heaven wants me to be. My glory means nothing to me. The only glory that matters is the glory that my Father in heaven works into my life as I live for him. Jesus goes on to say, I know God personally. You claim to know God, but you really don't. If you did know God, you would actually keep his word like Abraham did. Abraham kept the word of God. He cherished it. Abraham walked by faith. And then in verse 56, he showed them just how un-Abraham-like they are. Jesus makes this amazing statement. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What? How is that possible? Jesus says that Abraham, who lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus, longed to see my day. My day. He calls it my day. The Old Testament spoke of a day that was coming, the day of the Lord, when God would send his Messiah. He would restore his wayward people back to God and unleash all sorts of blessings. Jesus is saying that that messianic age that Abraham was looking forward to, that day of the Lord is my day. Abraham was looking forward to me. Abraham looked with glasses that were dark and dim, and yet when he looked towards the future at how God's grace was going to manifest itself in this world, he saw me, and he was glad. Abraham, in faith, knew that the day of the Lord was coming. And he kept God's promises. He cherished them. Abraham, in obedience to God, went to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. But then God stayed his hand and provided a a ram in the bush to substitute for his only son, Isaac. From that, Abraham knew that a day was coming where God would provide a better substitute. God would provide his very own son as a substitute to die for the world. Abraham longed to see Jesus' day. He just didn't know how it would unfold, but he knew it was coming. He saw it and he was glad. Talk about 
peeling away layers into Jesus' life and Jesus becoming bigger and more complex. Let me ask you this. If someone in the crowd genuinely cried out and said, Jesus, can you pause for a moment? Can you help me to understand what, what you mean by that? It's perplexing. Can you open the scriptures and teach us? Do you not think Jesus would have patiently shown them? He would have. But that's not how the people respond. In verse 57, they mock him. Look, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? The taunting of the crowds is about over. Jesus sees the type of people he is working with. The more layers they peel away, the more they misunderstand. Jesus will give them but one more layer. It's the climax of the passage. He begins with the words, truly, truly. Twenty times in John's gospel, Jesus utters those words, truly, truly. The Hebrew word is amen, amen. It means something along the lines of that which is sure, that which is valid, trustworthy. Jesus is saying to them, trust me, with, with eyes of love, not scorn. He's saying, it is true. It is true what I say to you. And then he drops the bomb. Before Abraham was, I am. And the crowd goes apoplectic. They're fighting over each other to see who can grab the stones. They're ripping them out of each other's hands, getting ready to throw them at Jesus Christ. The crowd was scandalized by Jesus' words. Why? Because with them, Jesus was saying that he himself is God. The word I am is God's revealed name. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was at the burning bush and God was saying, all right, so I need you to go uh, back to Egypt and free my people out of slavery. Remember how Moses responded? Exodus 3 verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God says, tell the people I am has sent you. Jesus says to the crowd before Abraham was, I am. The crowd knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. How do we know? Because they picked up stones to kill him. That was the proper punishment for blasphemy. But Jesus wasn't blaspheming. What he said was true. Before Abraham was born, I am. 
The words can only mean one thing, that Jesus is claiming to be divine. I am the transcendent God who had, who had existed outside of space and time. I'm the one who's created all things. I'm the one who has come to redeem and to restore all things. Before Abraham was, I am. When you peel back the layers of Jesus' identity more and more, what you must come to see at the core of his identity is that he is God in the flesh. Glorious divinity housed in humble humanity. You know who gets this right? Comic book writers. Clark Kent is really Superman. Peter Parker, he's really Spider-Man. Jesus of Nazareth, he's really God in the flesh. We have categories for these things. We have categories for glory in the humble. And the greatest category of of all is God himself taking on form of human nature. God came down to earth because we cannot go up to earth without his help, up to heaven without his help. So that's the conflict. Their peeling away of the layers came to a climax before Abraham was, I am, and now we're left with some things to contemplate. John concludes this long scene He goes that goes all the way back into chapter 7 with these words, uh, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The first thing for us to contemplate is this. If you don't get Jesus right, you will become a stone thrower at God. You always find something to throw back in his face and say, nope, that's not the God I want. Ponder the thought. The eternal, glorious, good and gracious God of all creation came and he took on flesh in order to free men and women from sin to establish God's kingdom forever and ever. These people that are in that temple that day, if they would but treasure Jesus' words and keep them, they would enjoy eternal life. But instead of bowing down and welcoming him and worshiping him, they bend down and pick up stones to kill him. They're literally wanting to throw stones at their creator. Did you see? Do you see how our misconceptions can get us so far from the truth? that we become people who throw stones at God himself. It's not just those ancient people in that temple that day. This is a modern phenomenon. They picked up stones to throw at the Son of God who came in peace. Another item for us to contemplate is this. John says... John ends by saying what? Jesus went out of the temple. What is the temple? 
The temple is the place where God dwells with his people on earth. God had his people build a physical temple. It was the second one. Uh, the first one got destroyed so that he could be present in their midst. When the first temple was created, there was a big ceremony. and God descended in glory, filled the temple. You couldn't even enter into it. They built the second temple. Guess what? Nah. God didn't descend in glory. And for, for centuries, the people of God have been waiting for the glory of God to return to the temple. And here he is standing in front of them. Jesus and all his glory, but they just can't see it. And we read, Jesus left, went out of the temple. God built a physical temple so that he could be present in the midst of his people. And here, God in the flesh, the great I am, is in the temple, and the people drive him out. And the God of glory will never shine again in that place. But that's okay. Why? Because Jesus replaced the temple. Remember, Jesus said, destroy this temple. In three days, I shall raise it up again. He was talking about his own human body. Listen, God templed on earth in Jesus Christ. God came and walked on this earth in the temple of Jesus Christ. That's what John says at the opening of his, of his gospel. He tells us that the word, Jesus, this word was there in the beginning. He created all things. And John says what? And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Now, some of you know here, maybe perhaps many of you know here, that the Greek word translated and um, dwelt, that, that he came in the flesh and dwelt among us, is the word that means to tabernacle or to tent. In the Old Testament, God came down and led his people in a tabernacle out in the wilderness. Jesus has done that. God has done that in Christ. He's tabernacled in a human body. I am. God himself stands in that temple and they drive him out with stones. Six months later, those, some of those same people are going to see Jesus on the streets and they're going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And then God in the flesh is crucified, dead and buried. The giver of life is, has lost his life. The author of creation is now buried in creation. But Jesus' promise has come true. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. My friends, Christ is risen. He has conquered death. His victory means our victory. If we keep his word, what does it mean to keep his word? It means we, we don't discard it like these people did in the temple and throw it aside, but we, we wrestle with it and we treasure it. We say things like, I don't quite understand that. I want to learn more. We keep it. Everything that Jesus says about himself, we, we treasure it. We make it ours. That's what it means to, to live and to walk by faith. My friends, let us keep Jesus' words, all the words of Scripture that he's spoken to us. Let us embrace them in faith. Let us keep them and treasure them. And let us be reminded, this is the last point, and we're going to move on to the table. Jesus continues to dwell on earth. He continues to tabernacle on this very earth. How so? Well, after when he arose into heaven after his his resurrection, he poured out his spirit upon what? 
another temple. It's called the church, the body of Christ. Try to wrap your heads around this. But God tabernacles to this very day on this earth through us. Talk about peeling back a layer. Seems so bizarre. Why would God do that? God tabernacles on this earth because he loves this earth. He loves people made in his image. And he dwells in us, his body, the church, that through us, as we, listen, as we don't seek our own glory, but rather seek the glory of our Father in heaven, God works in us and through us to accomplish his mission, his purpose for the east end of Long Island and and throughout this world. I emailed this out to some of you earlier this week, but contemplate this. Grace Presbyterian Church, that's us, is the localized body of Christ wherein Jesus truly tabernacles or temples on this earth. God meets this earth through us and he temples in us so that his gospel purposes can become reality here on the East End. The problem, though, is that many evangelical Christians tend to view this individualistically. They tend to see themselves as the individual temples of the Holy Spirit. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what Paul told the Corinthians, right? It's me and and vertical, right? Not exactly. What did Paul write? He said to the Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. We, plural, are the temple, singular. We, the gathered in, cherished, loved people of God, as broken and as messed up as we are, we, the church, we are the body of Christ. We collectively are the place in which God temples on this earth. Peel back that layer. It might be hard for some of you, but that's what you need to come to understand. It's the reason why Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So let's contemplate this. We, Grace Church, are the means by which God continues to tabernacle or temple on this earth. May we meditate on that. May it cause us to to delight that we are the body of Christ, cherished by God so much. Yes, we're imperfect people. Yes, we fall short. Yes, we tick each other off. But we're the temple of Christ. And we experience Christ together as we gather together. Jesus continues to tabernacle on this earth in us. My friends, let us be a people who commit to a lifelong journey of peeling back layer after layer into Jesus, into his purposes, into who we are as the church, his body. Let us not become content like we can as Christians of only getting so deep. I've learned enough. Let us keep going deeper and deeper. And what we'll realize is that the more layers we peel back concerning Jesus and who he is, the bigger, the more complex, and the more glorious Jesus becomes. 
May we keep and treasure his words. May we, may we see the day of the Lord and be glad. May we be a rejoicing, happy people. May we love and worship the only one who's able to truthfully say before Abraham was, I am. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around so many things we've discussed. Jesus, we do confess here and now that you are the great I am. You've proven it. Um, You came to earth. God in the flesh. May we, may we not discard these truths. May we keep them and treasure them. May we commit to going deeper and deeper into who you are. Where we have questions, may we honestly bring them before you and before others who can help us so that we can get deeper and deeper in this knowledge of you so that we may rise in greater and greater worship of you. We pray. Amen.